Look, you turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And as we turn to the Word of the Lord this morning, we're going to let the children be dismissed for their junior church with Mrs. Hop this morning. We're turning to the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 7. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're grateful to have you and pray that we uh, can in some way be a blessing to you through the Word of God. We're working our way through a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the topic of moral purity uh, pretty much from the angle of chapter 6 and verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. This morning, I've titled my sermon, Positive Morality, Protecting Your Marriage, or Protecting Your Future Marriage. So this morning, a shift away from the negatives towards the positive, and that is to understand that God has a positive way for us to embrace a morality that will allow us to fulfill the directive at the end of chapter 6, therefore, honor God with your body. So that we don't walk away from this discussion in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 thinking that Christianity is largely negative. It is, Christians are people who avoid certain behaviors. That's not an adequate definition of Christianity. Christians should be people who avoid certain behavior, but who certainly embrace a biblical morality, which requires an awful lot of positive activity and a heart committed to obeying God. Why address this topic? And I just want to give you three thoughts real quickly by way of introduction. Number one, I believe it is important that we address the topic of purity and marriage for the sake of the country in which we live. Marriage and families are the building stones of culture. You can go back to the beginning. In Genesis, God created man, came to the conclusion quickly that it is not good for man to be alone. He gives her, him a help meet, and that becomes the cornerstone or building block of the culture in which you and I have been called to live called planet Earth. If we mess with the foundation stones, we put the structure at risk. And I would argue this. We live in a country that has put the structure of our culture at risk by devaluing the foundation stones of community's structure. And that is marriage. For that reason, I think we should fight for it. Secondly, marriage and purity are vital and important to the body of Christ. Our young people are growing up in a morally confused and uncertain world. My desire as their pastor and as your pastor, is to shine a little bit of light that you can take and apply to their lives for the glory of God to help them to be able to see that there is a biblical way to deal with morality. The most important reason, I believe, is found at the end of chapter 6. Therefore, honor God with your body. The most important reason we should pursue biblical morality is because it glorifies God. It honors Him when we allow our lives to function in every regard in a way that exalts God, His glory, and the life change that He so graciously brings into our lives. So for those three reasons, I think it is vital that we pursue this topic of positive morality by protecting your marriage current or your future marriage. Now, as we begin in chapter 7, Paul makes a fascinating statement that I think helps us to understand a little bit of what's going on here. At the beginning of chapter 7, he says this. He says, now for the matters that you wrote about. Okay? So, 
in chapters 1 through 6, what is Paul doing? Paul's responding to rumors of inappropriate behavior within the body of Christ at Corinth. As their spiritual father, he doesn't say, oh well, it's of no great consequence. No, he spent six chapters coming to the church in a letter seeking to redirect them to unity and purity. Those two being the major themes of chapters 1 through 6. Unity and purity. In chapter 7, he switches the venue, if you will, and begins to respond now to questions that they had. Why? Because they lived in a world of moral confusion in Corinth. The Greco-Roman world was not a world that exalted moral purity. And so the church had questions, in this case, specifically about the topic of marriage and singleness. Celibacy. Okay? There's a hot topic, right? Attention-grabbing. Okay? I want you to notice how Paul addressed this. He uses this question about celibacy to segue into a discussion of how to maintain biblical purity. He said to abstain from immorality. Now he's going to direct us to embrace and to pursue positive morality. So verse 1. About the matters that you wrote to me, Paul says, fascinating statement. New International Translation. It is good for a man not to marry. How many of you have the New American Standard Version in front of you? Where it says it's good for a man, or a number of you. It's good for a man, what's it say? Not to touch a woman. Okay? In the Greek language, that would be a euphemism for physical intimacy. Okay? So, in the New International Translation, it's a little bit more interpretive. The literal translation is, don't touch a woman. What did that mean in the ancient world? It didn't mean that married people had to abstain from physical intimacy. It's not what it meant speaking to those who are considering singleness as a life pattern, Paul has a preference. Why? Because Paul was, at this point in his life, from everything we can tell, an unmarried man. He is expressing in this text his preference for celibacy. And so what he says is, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. What is he saying? Marriage is not for everyone. And on the other hand... Singleness is certainly not for everyone. Now I want you to notice how he says this. He's describing his preference for singleness. And if you move ahead further in the chapter to verse 26, you're going to find the Apostle Paul talking about current circumstances as reasons for his preference for singleness. Okay, here's the way he says it. Because of the present distress... We don't know exactly what's going on. We know that the early church faced serious persecution and pressure when they came to Christ. What Paul is probably indicating is that a married individual has, by God's design, a divided obligation or responsibility. A mom has children and a husband to care for. A dad has children and a household to care for and to provide for. And in the present circumstance, it is likely that Paul is referring to the pressure that comes against those who are believers. And what is he saying? I personally, not me now, Paul, prefer singleness in light of the environment in which the believers in Corinth were called to live. Okay? But I want you to notice what he says. But since there is so much immorality, verse 2, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Okay, now he's moving into the next topic. So, singleness in life can be good if it is your God-given gift. Okay, get down to verses 6 and 7 real quickly. 
Paul says, I say this as a concession, not as a command. What does he mean? He's referring to the topic of celibacy, singleness, as a minister of the gospel, as a preference for him, realizing that it's not for everybody. He's not saying you should be single and carnal. He's saying there's a couple of factors you need to take into consideration. So verse 6 he says, I say this by way of concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God, and one has one gift, one another has that. Okay, what is Paul saying? Singleness in certain circumstances can be the preferred mode for the Christian life. But it certainly is not for everyone. And I would argue from Genesis 2 and verse 18 that it is likely that it is for a minority of people. And Paul's argument is this. If God has given you the gift of celibacy, of living singly to fulfill the work of God and unique directives from God in your life, then stick with celibacy. If that is your God-given calling. But if it's not, what does he say? Verse number 2. But since there is so much immorality, each should have his own each man should have his own wife, each woman should have her own husband. Okay, so where does this leave us? Some have the gift of celibacy and singleness. It is not a gift that God gave me. I understand that. I understand that there are people that God has given that gift to. Probably the premier example of that in my mind is a pastor in England named John Stott. If you've ever read any of the books by John Stott, he is a wonderful, godly Anglican man who lives in Britain. Has the gift of celibacy. God called him to put his whole life into ministry alone. And he has had a dramatic and powerful impact on the kingdom of God. Why? God gave him a gift, he embraced that gift, and is using his life for the glory of God. Paul, on the other hand, is going to say that marriage is also honorable and preferable for most people. So let's look at, at, at a few thoughts this morning. Those with the gift of celibacy, celibacy and singleness should pursue it. But God has purposes for blessing in your marriage. And here's what I want to say. Valuing and protecting your marriage will provide for you three benefits. If God has not called you to singleness, then you need to understand what He wants you to do in the context of your marriage relationship. He wants us to value and protect our marriages. And when we do, it will produce three distinct or unique benefits in our lives. Let me give you the three words that I'll pursue this morning. One is protection. Number two is pleasure. Number three is permanence. Okay, God wants us to experience in our lives protection, pleasure, and permanence within the context of our marriages. And when we value marriage, those are things that will flow out of a commitment to the individual that God has called us to enjoy life with. Let's look at this first thought, protection. I'm going to make this assertion. Marriage protects and promotes moral purity. Okay, marriage protects and promotes moral purity. You say, Tim, where are you getting that from the text? Verse number two. Notice what Paul says. Since there is so much immorality, which clearly in the context refers to an immorality in regards to the use of one's body physically. Okay, that's the specific context. Because there is a looseness in regards to sexual things, Paul says that marriage is the preferred state for those that don't have the gift of singleness. And when you embrace marriage, it will bring protection into your life. What is he saying? Marriage is natural for most. Therefore, it should be embraced. Marriage serves also as a protection for sin. That's what Paul means in verse 2. Since there is so much immorality, each should have his own wife, 
and each woman should have her own husband. Okay, did you see how that falls out? Okay, that within the context of one man and one woman, there is a protection of marriage that glorifies and honors God. Go to verses 8 and 9, and you'll get another twist from the Apostle Paul on this topic. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. That is Paul's preference, not a command. Verse 9, but if they cannot control themselves, in regards to what? In regards to the desire for physical intimacy, which is a God-given desire. Okay, if they can't withhold from that experience and be pure, what is Paul saying? They should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. What's the idea here? It is better to find that soulmate that God wants you to live with in your life and to enjoy physical intimacy with them than it is to burn, to, to kind of chafe under a need for expression and have no context in which to express it. And God has a context in which to express physical intimacy that will protect your life and your marriage and your children. Okay? Marriage is a place where this issue of physical intimacy, of sexual morality, is protected by God's design. To fight the need for marriage is to fight, in Paul's way of thinking, an unnatural battle. To try to stay single when you have a sense that you should be with someone. Paul says, don't go there. Don't do that to yourself. Pray that God will bring someone into your life that you can enjoy the rest of your life with for the glory of God. And this context that God designed very clearly is what? It is between a man and a woman. God's Word is clear on this and authoritative on this. This rules out what? Number one, if it's to be a man and a woman according to Genesis 3, it rules out polygamy, more than one wife. It rules out infidelity in the context of your marriage. Do you see how Paul's tying that together? One man and one woman is the design of God for the greatest joy in physical intimacy. Okay, that's God's design. So it rules out any forms of infidelity. It rules out any same-sex relationships very clearly. These, this context for protecting morality is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. It also addresses the issue of cohabitation. Why? What it's saying is that the passion to be intimate with someone is to be satisfied in a context that will protect it from being distorted and perverted and lost ultimately as to its God-given purpose. Does that make sense? Okay, so that when it is pursued in its God-given context, that gift is protected and it honors and glorifies God. Now, when you react to the distortions that are present in our culture, looseness about the permanence of marriage, same-sex relationships, some of those sorts of things, cohabitation. What should your attitude be? What should your attitude be? You have a friend as a college student that says, I'm moving in with my girlfriend. What should your attitude be? Okay, you have, I believe you have a God-given obligation to say to them, marriage is the context in which God wants to protect your physical relationship. Does He want you to rain down on them with wrath and fire and brimstone? Does He want you to walk around with posters to protest behavior that you believe is biblically out of bounds? As some do with posters that say God hates and you can fill it in. Is that what God wants? I would argue this. I would argue that God wants the church to stand up for truth 
without apology, but with the love of Christ. The best way to fight against the distortions that are present in our culture is to embrace personally and wholeheartedly the God-given design for marriage. That's the starting point. Work on your marriage. You know, if you want to respond to distortion, or if you want to prove that a line is, 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 is not straight, how do you prove that a line is not straight? You know what you do? You hold up a straight line. And you demonstrate that there is some curvature in that line, and the straight line proves that this line is out of whack. The best way to respond to perversion, to distortion in regards to morality, is to uphold the biblical model, and to love it, and to embrace it, and to find deep satisfaction in it. That's why young people, before marriage, embracing the God-given design, sex is for marriage only, upholds truth. I had a young person say to me recently, they got into a discussion, athletic team going to an athletic event on the school bus. And the discussion was this. How many of you have maintained sexual purity in your life? This young man found out he was in the minority for the glory of God, but not for the approval of people. He found out he was in the minority. We live in a world that will seek to pressure you into its mold. God calls you to stand up for His truth and uphold biblical morality. Why? It is the best way to fight against the distortion that is present in the culture that we live in. Attitude is crucial. We are to speak the truth according to Ephesians 5 in love. Our response must never be the parading with posters. But then here's the question that comes up. Am I forced as a Christian? Because this is what the world will tend to do. Am I forced to choose between loving someone and disapproving of their behavior? Okay? Am I forced to choose between... Let me just use... Jason, I'm going to use you as an example, okay? This has nothing to do with any discussion I've ever had with Jason, okay? But let's say Jason is being immoral, okay? But because I'm his pastor and I have appreciation for him, I say, you know what? I love Jason so much that it would be hard to say something to him about this behavior that's outside the bounds of Scripture, okay? Do I have to choose, as the world tends to say, between loving Jason and speaking the truth to Jason? Is it one or the other? Okay? And what I would argue is this. I would argue that the Bible is going to say that as a Christian, because I love Jason, I'm going to speak to that issue in his life with the truth of God's Word. Love demands that we say something. Okay? Folks, understand this. No matter what level or degree of perversion is present in someone's life, as a Christian, we have to say this. Silence for me is not an option. Why? Because there is hope for deliverance by God in that person's life. Go back to chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Okay, look back at chapter 6 and verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? So we must speak to them. Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, or prostitutes, or homosexual offenders. And he goes on and on. And at the, later in that verse, what does he say? And that is what some of you were like. But you were washed. You were cleansed. You were forgiven by the grace of God. So the choice for the church is don't let the world push you into a corner where you have to choose between loving someone and speaking the truth to them as two independent options. I would say no, because I love humanity and love people. I must speak the truth of God's Word into their life. Isn't this what every parent wrestles with? Isn't this the battle that you deal with? 
want your kids to walk in truth. You see them step out of line. But if you say too much, they think you don't like them anymore. Because that's the world that we live in. If you speak out on a topic like same-sex same sex marriage, here's what you risk. You risk being called a bigot. You risk being maligned. Okay, that is not enough of a reason to withdraw hope from people that need it. Do you understand? Because they may disapprove or dislike doesn't mean I shouldn't speak in love the truth of God's Word into every situation, particularly in regards to this topic of moral purity. Silence is not an option when there is profound hope for deliverance. God's grace must be extended and God's grace can deliver and in the case of Corinth, it had. Our message to those that have wrestled and to ourselves personally, those who have wrestled with areas of immorality is this. There is more grace, as one writer has said, in God's heart than there is sin in your past. There is more grace in the heart of God than there is sin in your past. That's the powerful truth from the Word of God. Another thought is this. God is a better Savior than you are a sinner. He is, as we just sung this morning, He is mighty to save. I never have to wonder, oh, I, I wonder what issues are present in this person's life. And once I found out the issues, I determined whether or not I should share the grace of God in Christ with them. No, no. There is no one who is outside of the reach of God's grace, no matter what patterns are present in their life. God can save, God can deliver. And when he does, he will protect their moral purity for the glory of his name. He had done it in Corinth in all kinds of situations. The church needs to have courage to speak this truth because it brings protection into your marriage or future marriage. Second thought is this. A benefit of embracing positive biblical morality is pleasure. Marriage is the God-given context in which physical intimacy is to be expressed and enjoyed. Now, that makes me want to stop and say, should we say that? Would God be okay with us saying that He intended physical intimacy for pleasure. Is it appropriate to make that claim? My response to that question simply is this. Not only do I think it's appropriate, but I believe, and I know, that God dedicated an entire book in the Old Testament in beautiful poetry to the topic of physical intimacy. Why? Because physical intimacy in the God-given context honors and glorifies His name. It is a gift from Him that we have the burden of protecting and honoring, and when we do, it will bring pleasure into our lives. Notice verse 3. The husband, in the context of one who has his own wife, or in the context of a wife who has her own husband, context is marriage. The husband shall fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. Okay? Now... There is a fascinating verse. We have, in the context of marriage, a God-given duty and or responsibility to provide satisfaction in each other's lives. That is the God-given design. It is the right of married people to enjoy this experience together because it has God-given purposes. Verse 4, Paul gives his reasoning. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Isn't it, Think about this. There are some that say that Paul was a bit of a prude. And in verse 1, Paul's expressing his abhorrence for physical intimacy. 
Okay? I don't know how that can be said, but there are commentators that say that. Because when I get into verses 3 and 4, I find Paul very clearly honing in on the God-given purpose for physical intimacy, which is protected in the context of marriage. The reasoning is this. Her body belongs to you, husband. Your body belongs to her. There are rights and obligations in the context of marriage that are to be fulfilled for the glory of God. They are God-given purposes. And when this is understood, a couple things will be present. Number one will be procreation. It defines the God-given context in which children are to be raised. Okay? Procreation is one of the outcomes of physical intimacy. It also is for this purpose. Mutual pleasure. Not, please understand, not a selfish self-seeking, demanding gratification, like a slavish mindset. Not that. But it is intended to bring a mutual joy and satisfaction and pleasure in the context of oneness in marriage. The instincts are healthy. They are God-given. And when they are protected, they bring honor to His name. Can I make an observation about a sad truth in our culture? Please understand how I say this. We live in a culture that glorifies and it tends to magnify the pleasure of physical intimacy outside of marriage, don't we? If you watch many movies, if you watch much TV, if you read much in the way of print material, in this regard, the the overwhelming sense is that good physical intimacy is found where? Outside of marriage. And the church needs to stand up and say, I disagree, based on the Word of God, that the best physical intimacy is found in its God-given context. And when it is experienced outside, it injures, it wounds, it steals, it exploits. And it can become a very self-centered and selfish expression. In its God-given context, what happens? It is shameless, it is enjoyed, and the enjoyment of it brings glory to God. Why? Because it is a gift from Him. And when that deep level of human intimacy is experienced, and a bonding emotionally, it glorifies the One who gave it for that purpose. God gave that pleasure to draw you together in your marriage so that the world around you can see something glorious that honors and glorifies the purposes of God. It builds and deepens intimacy. And I just flip back to our discussion from chapter 6. That's why we must say it is not merely biological. Okay, because when you make it merely biological, skin on skin, you steal it of its God-given purpose. Its purpose is to build intimacy and joy into your marital relationship. Since that then is the case, Okay, if God gave it to build intimacy and to protect the permanence of your marriage, what do you think the evil one wants to do with it? You know what he wants to do with it? He wants to exploit it. He wants to make it about you instead of about you and your mate or you and your future mate. He wants you to think that it is about you and that it is simply biological and it is an expression that you can participate in for your own pleasure without injuring and wounding it. Folks, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Notice what Paul says in the next verse. 
Verse 5. Do not deprive each other. What's the topic? The topic is physical intimacy in the God-given context. Don't deprive each other except by mutual consent and that for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then, come back together again. Why, Paul? Okay, Paul's saying there may be seasons in your life where there are spiritual issues that need to be addressed. And there may be a need for a time of separation to address those spiritual needs. But Paul's concern after that time of separation is be sure that you come back together again. Why, Paul? Notice what it says in the rest of the verse. Lest Satan tempt you. Folks, here's what that means. If you let bitterness in your marriage keep you from enjoying physical intimacy with your mate, you are giving Satan a crack in your life where he will stick in his wedge of deceit and drive it through to divide your home. That's what Satan will try to do. That means, husbands, love your wife. Wives, love your husband. Whatever bitterness is there that is keeping you apart, make sure you deal with it. Because this physical intimacy is a gift from God that is meant to preserve and to strengthen our homes. The word deprive in verse 5 literally means stop robbing each other. It's in the present tense. Don't persistently do that. Now folks, here's the positive side. Okay, here's the positive side. John Piper put it in this way. He said, we should fight the fire of lust and its pleasures. Okay, because every lust that is expressed is followed because we think there is pleasure in it. Here's what he says. Fight the fire of lust's pleasures with the fire of God's pleasures. Okay? Respond to Satan's deception about physical intimacy by pursuing biblical intimacy. That means, in signalness, abstain, preserve it, protect it for the glory of God and the future marriage that God will give you one day. Protect it. And in the context of your marriage, participate in it, enjoy it for the glory of God and for the good of your home and your children. It will draw you together in a God-designed way that is very powerful. Please do not take what I'm saying as a license to demand. Okay? But I think I can at least say this. I think the text easily is saying be available to each other in the context of your marriage to honor this God-given purpose of pleasure in your home that will build and bring joy into your home. Young people, here's what I would say to you. Take care of yourself before marriage. Understand that one day down the road, God has a beautiful context in which this will bring great joy to your life. You have every reason to protect this as if it was a very precious treasure in your life. Don't let Satan cause you to think that participation in it outside of marriage will bring joy. It will not. And I guarantee you this, what it usually produces is shame and guilt. And if that's happened in your life, there is a place for forgiveness. And I want you to know that. God's boundaries in this regard are given to protect and preserve the greatest joy without regret. That's His desire. You might say, Pastor Tim, that's hard. Yeah, I know. I know. But I also know that in Matthew 6.33, Jesus Christ says this. He says, seek first my kingdom, my principles, my truth, my command, my directives. And then what does he say? And then all these things will be added to you. 
You know why we step out of God, outside of God's boundaries? Because we're looking for happiness. We're looking for satisfaction. We're looking for pleasure. Here's what Jesus says. Honor me by a little bit of sacrifice. Seek my kingdom, my principles, my truth in this regard. And then everything you're looking for will come in God's time. And it will come without baggage into your life. And it will be one of the sources of great joy in your life. By God's design and for His glory. The last thought I touch on this morning is this. When we honor and embrace marriage as God's design, it will produce permanence in our marriages. It will produce permanence in our marriages. God designed marriage to be a permanent partnership. If you go back into chapter 6 and verse 16, you will find that Paul says when people participate in the physical relationship, they become one flesh. Why? Because that is God's design, to produce a relationship of permanence an intertwining of individuals that will last a lifetime and bring joy for a lifetime. Go to the last verse of chapter 7 with me. Verse 39. Which is the second to the last verse in my Bible. Verse 39 says this. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Okay? What does that say about marriage? When you said, I do... God brought you together, His intent, His design for life. Here's the fascinating thing. On the wedding day, everybody's up for that promise, right? Till death parts us. And then we get into debates and arguments and scuffles in the context of our marriage. And we start to wonder about separation. You know what God says? God says, I intended for marriage to be a permanent partnership between a man and a woman. And when we embrace the biblical model, here's what it will produce. A desire to work on the relationship. Why? Because, alright, I'll say it this way. We're stuck with each other. We're stuck with each other. Okay, and let me just quickly tell you this. Okay? Because, I, I, look, I love it when I know that the person coming to me who's struggling in their marriage is a committed Christian. They're not going anywhere. My wife knows I'm not going anywhere. I know. I know, no. My wife is not going anywhere. That is a dangerous level of commitment, isn't it? To open yourself up in such a way that I know she's not going anywhere. But here's what Paul's saying. Let that call to permanence draw you to work it out and to get it strong. Because when it's strong, it glorifies God and it shows to your children, this is God's plan. Do you see? Now, if you push me a little bit, I'm going to argue that in this text and in the Gospels, Jesus Christ talks about two exceptions in regards to the definition of permanence. They're not commands, they're exceptions. They're context in which a divorce may be pondered. An individual is permitted to ponder a divorce in these settings, and they are too. In this text, an unbelieving mate wants to leave a believing brother or sister in Christ. Okay, you move ahead a little bit to verses 14 through 16. The unbeliever wants to leave. Here's what Paul says, don't fight him. It's a losing battle. If they're not committed to the Savior as you are and don't want to be with you, then you let them go. But here's what he also says. If the unbelieving partner wants to continue in the relationship with you, you have an obligation from God to continue in that relationship with Him for the glory of God. And when you do, in verses 14 through 16, what is Paul saying? That mate who doesn't know Christ will watch your life. And as they watch your love for Christ, your passion for Christ, your delight in Christ, 
They are exposed to the gospel over and over. And the same is true for your children. So if that's your setting, you are a believer. Your mate is not yet a believer. Live the life. Live the gospel in front of your mate. Make Jesus appealing. Put him in a setting that your mate looks at and says, you know what? I would love to have the joy in Christ that you have and your children will be blessed by your commitment to obey God in that setting. And honor Him and just love Him and say, God, work in my mate's life. Work in my wife's life. Work in my husband's life. This will be a blessing for our kids. The other exception uh, for divorce is uh, in the Bible, adultery. Okay? Hard-hearted adultery, I believe, is what Jesus is leaning toward. A habitual, persistent desire to violate marital covenant. And the marital covenant is fidelity. Uh, I was joking around with some of the uh, single young people at... uh, at our house a couple weeks ago at a picnic, I said there may be a third grounds for divorce, and that's power walking. Um, you got to think about that for a second. I used to always said to my wife, if you ever want to go power walking, please do it at night. Okay? Uh, God's design for marriage is that it be a permanent relationship. Here's the question. Why? Why? I believe the answer is found in Ephesians chapter 5 because the relationship between a husband and wife pictures the relationship between God and every redeemed person. Okay? The church is called the bride of Christ. He, in that context, is the husband. We are collectively his bride. His relationship with us is permanent because in salvation, he purchases us by his grace. And when we sin, he does not toss us aside because we disappointed him. No, he pursues forgiveness and reconciliation and a deepened intimacy. And that is the picture that we portray to the world around us when we embrace the God-given design for marriage. Does that make sense? You go to Ephesians 5 and you read it because we don't have time this morning. But if you go and read that, what you're going to find is that every Christian marriage is to be a picture, a picture of the love that Jesus Christ has for us. There are no perfect marriages, folks. There are no marriages in which there are never disagreements. There are none. If you're sitting here thinking, well, mine's unique, it's not. It's not. A good marriage always takes work. It always takes a Christ-like attitude towards the mate when there is an offense. Always, always, someone has to take the hit and forgive. Always. The relationship by God's design is intended to be permanent. If I say less than that, I dishonor the Word of God. Now, I know that that does this for some. It raises pain. It raises fear. All I can do is challenge you to this. Embrace the God-given model. And when you do, it'll bring protection into your life in terms of morality. When you do, it will bring pleasure into your life, into your marital relationship. When you do, it will bring a heart for permanence in an imperfect marriage. Which is what all of us have, isn't it? And it will say to the young people in our church, God has a plan for your life. God wants you to wait to enjoy this in a God-given context that will bring deep joy and satisfaction in your life. And that satisfaction will glorify the Savior. And that physical relationship will have this very powerful and beautiful effect of bringing you together in an intimacy that God calls one flesh. An experience that by God's design is best when it is experienced in the context of marital fidelity between a man and a woman. 
all other options are perversions that attempt to say that there is happiness apart from God's path and God's way. And I would beg you to listen to God. Learn His instruction. If there's sin in the past that you need to deal with, go to God and say, God, please forgive me. Because in regards to your truth about these topics, I was maybe you were ignorant, maybe you didn't know. And today, God's turning on the lights and you're saying, you know what, I wish I'd heard this earlier. But I can encourage you to do this. Start today. Start today to embrace the biblical model and you will have great joy from God in your life. <clears throat> Let's bow our heads together this morning.